My name is Jim Mullins, and it is a privilege for me today to continue in our countercultural conviction series. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at convictions that we have as a church, convictions that come from Scripture, that we feel like are run counter to culture in some ways, but are life-giving to the world, things we want to hold on to. And so today, we're talking about the conviction of caring for the vulnerable, the biblical call to care for the poor, for the sick, for the widow, for the orphan, and all who find themselves in positions of suffering and vulnerability. That's our conviction. And today, I want to start with a survey. It's not a very complex survey. It's a one-question survey. Who here, raise your hand, if you believe that we should care for the vulnerable and those in need. Go ahead and raise your hands. Almost unanimous. Except for a few people out there who are like, I think you're going to trick me right now. <laughs> In fact, I am. Uh -huh. It's unanimous. And if we were to go out in the street and just do a man-on-the-street survey, no matter the person's background or age, and we were to ask that question, almost everybody, except for a few kind of uh, people with some divergent ideas, would answer yes. If we searched all the religious texts, you'd find that just about every religion, every philosophy has some sort of teaching on caring for those in need. So how is this countercultural? As a matter of fact, this might be, in the middle of this polarized world, the most accepted idea that spans across all religions, all cultures, all backgrounds. This might be the least countercultural conviction in the world. Even Hitler, <laughs> even the most evil people in the world thought that we should do something to care for those in need. Hitler had his charity for little German kids. ISIS has a food redistribution program. Even Charlie Manson put, put out some crazy album that he recorded while in prison and gave away the proceeds. Even Hitler, ISIS, and Charlie Manson have some sort of impulse to care for those in need. So when we have the conviction of, should I care for those in need? We're in company with about 7 billion people and in the company of Hitler, ISIS, and Charlie Manson. How is this a countercultural conviction? It's not. It's the easiest thing to believe in the world. But here is the countercultural conviction. Are we going to do something about it? It's easy to believe we should, but it's very countercultural to actually do. Because in a world with 7 million people who have that conviction, it's also a world where you have 38 million people experiencing hunger in the U.S. while the average American throws away 40% of their food. 60% of Americans are experiencing homelessness while the rest of us go hang out with imaginary people every night on Netflix. There's 550 thousand homeless people while we live in a world of, of 33 million spare bedrooms. 
If the conviction, should I help the vulnerable, mattered, that wouldn't be the case. But what's countercultural is actually stepping in and doing something about it. And when we do something about it, we show the very nature of our God who steps into the pain, who steps into the mess, and didn't conceptually love us, didn't hypothetically love us, but actually entered in and gave his life for us, rescued us while we are vulnerable. We need someone to lead us out of the conviction of should we do something? to actually doing something. And I have an idea of who it should be. Jesus. <laughs> so today we're going to look at Luke 10. We're going to look at this parable that Jesus uh, gives, this teaching about the Good Samaritan. And in it, we're going to find some invitations, some things that we should pay attention to that are going to lead us out of the hypothetical and into the real love and care for those in need. So go ahead, if you will. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25, and I'm going to pray. Spirit of God, we pray that in this moment that you would guide us, that you would speak to us, that you would lead us. Be our good shepherd that leads us to those who are suffering, who are invulnerable, who are vulnerable. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The first character on the scene is this lawyer, this guy who's coming to test Jesus, it says. And when you think lawyer, don't think like, like a, an attorney, don't think like Saul Goodman, Breaking Bad sort of stuff. But this guy was more of an expert in Old Testament law. Think more of like the the theologian, you know, the old-timey theologian with the big beard who's always scowling and stuff like that. This kind of smug theologian. That's what we have in this moment. He's been listening to Jesus. Says he's trying to test him. He's trying to trip Jesus up. And so he's got some questions for Jesus. And, and ultimately, he starts this conversation about what's the main thing? What's the most important thing that we should focus on? The thing that leads to eternal life. The, the, the core of your message, Jesus. Jesus isn't taking the bait. Jesus flips it on him. He says, what do you think? And you know, this guy, you, you could tell this guy likes to hear himself talk. He's glad someone asked because he's got an answer. He's been paying attention to Jesus. And in verse 27, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbors yourself. See, he's been listening to Jesus. That's the core of Jesus's teaching. He knows that Jesus has taken Deuteronomy 6, the call to love God with everything, and Leviticus 18, to love your neighbors yourself and putting it together. He knows Jesus is saying that this is the core of life. This is what the whole law is pointing to. And he has listened and he's throwing out the right answer. Loves to be right. Jesus agrees with him. He said, you're right. Verse 28, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. End of conversation. No, because this dude's got some questions. He's trying to trap Jesus. He said, okay, I'll love my neighbor, but tell me this, who's my neighbor? This isn't a sincere question of like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go love my neighbor now. Who, should, who is it? 
But it's the, the question of someone who's trying to get Jesus to limit the scope of who his neighbor is so he can only love the people he likes that he cares about. He's wanting Jesus uh, to, to narrow the scope of neighborly love to just the Jewish people and not the Gentiles and the Samaritans outside. And Jesus, being brilliant, doesn't give a dictionary definition of neighbor, but he actually tells a story. A story with the Samaritan, the political, religious, ethnic other as the hero of the story. And the story starts like this. It starts with a man who's on a journey. He's traveling. We don't know why he's traveling, but he's on a road and he finds himself on a road surrounded. A group is, has stared him down. They've stalked him. They've tracked him down and he is surrounded. And all of a sudden the fists start flying and they beat him They knock him out. They, they take all of his possessions. They, they rob him of, of what he has and they leave him sprawled out on the ground, on the side of the road, left to die unless someone comes to help. Can you imagine what it would be like to be on that road? The waves of panic you would feel. How you'd take your tongue and feel the, the loose teeth in your mouth. You'd see the, your bone blood staining the ground around you. You're, you're drifting in and out of consciousness, just hoping somebody will show up. You are the vulnerable. And you just want someone to show up. And then you catch a glimpse off to the distance. Someone's moving towards you. You wonder, is it the robbers? Are they back? But as it gets closer, the person looks familiar. You can tell by their clothing, by their robe, that it's a Jewish priest. And your heart starts to feel relief as they're moving towards you. You know that that person knows God's word, that they can go to any book of the Bible and see God's heart for the vulnerable, heart for justice, heart to care for those in need. If anyone's going to help, it's that person. But just imagine as you watch your own pastor move to the other side of the road and walk away, how deflated you'd feel. And it's not a fluke. Another person comes by the road, and it's a Levite, a member of the holiest family within Israel, set apart for ministry in the temple, and does the same exact thing with his good theology, his ideas about justice, his ideas about loving the neighbor in his pocket, walks around the Samaritan, or walks around the wounded person. But then, just as you think there's no hope, you see someone else coming. And you're excited at first, but then you see it's a Samaritan. Your religious, political, ethnic enemy. And you see he's coming right at you. He definitely sees you. And you're wondering if he's coming to finish the job. And as he gets closer, closer you're imagining Samaritan fists coming raining down on you. And the last face you'll see is a brutal Samaritan rather than the face of your own family. But in verse 33, it says something that's easy to overlook, a scandalous thing. It says that the Samaritan saw the wounded person 
and have compassion. Instead of fists of rage, they're the gentle hands of someone with compassion who binds up the wounds, who cares for him medically, who puts him on the animal and begins the journey to bring him back into town, who shows up at the inn and, and, and turns the inn into a hospital by saying, look, I will pay for all of the medical treatment for this person. Any expense that occurs, I'm coming back days later and I'm going to pay for it. He could have just dropped him off on the side of town, but he went the extra mile and cared for him. Jesus tells this story. He looks the theologian dead in the eye and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And this smug theologian, unable to even utter the word Samaritan, says the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. You go be like the Samaritan. And in telling this story, Jesus is giving us a mentor, an imaginary mentor, the Samaritan, who is going to show us where Jesus wants us to go, show us how to move toward the vulnerable. And what we see in this passage is through this story, we see three invitations that are going to bring us to actually do something about the vulnerable, not just believe we should. So number one is that we swim against the current. Number two is that we audit our gifts. And number three is that we see the true Samaritan. So let's start with swim against the current. The reality is that when we really think about why do we not care about the vulnerable? Why do we not move toward them? Why so much inaction? There are a number of ways you could answer it. You talk about your own sin and motives. But there are forces at work, cultural forces at work that are pushing us away from the most vulnerable that we want to talk about today. And there was probably something like that going on with the priest and the Levite as well. They believe they should, but verse 31 and 32 should shock us. These simple little phrases when it says, when he saw him, when the priest saw the wounded person, he passed to the other side. Not just he like didn't see him, but he was literally taking steps to get more distance away from the wounded person. And the current, there are many currents in culture that are like rivers pulling us away from the most vulnerable that if we don't pay attention and we don't swim against them, we will never actually do something. You want to talk about those? Let's, okay, I'm going to do it anyway. So... Um, <laughs> All right, so the first one is a culture of comfort. We live in a culture of comfort. Let's do a little thought exercise. The Apostle Paul somehow finds the DeLorean, and he travels in time, and he shows up here. What is he going to be most confused about? There are a lot of things that are going to confuse him. iPhones, all kinds of stuff, football. He's going to be, but I think... He's going to be really confused, overwhelmed, perplexed when he sees how many pillows are around in America. <laughs> Why memory foam and hypoallergenic and the microbeads and the buckwheat 
You've got throw pillows. Pillows you just throw. You don't even use them. Why so many pillows? And, and, and it's, it's funny. It's me. I'm trying to win an argument with my wife right now. But, like, but in many ways, the pillow is the icon of American life. We surround ourselves with real pillows, but we also surround ourselves with metaphorical pillows that keep us from any sort of discomfort in the world. The high value we have of comfort, keep it at the right temperature. Keep, keep uh, my schedule nice and clear. Keep everything, uh, don't, I don't want to have smells that bother me. I just want to be comfortable. So much of the advertising is aimed at your comfort. So much of our effort is aimed at comfort. And here's the deal. On the path toward the vulnerable, there's not a lot of comfort. The Samaritan didn't have comfort. The Samaritan had bloodstains and blistered feet from the extra walking and, and, uh, and, 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 and the weight of carrying his own pack. The uncomfortable glances of a Samaritan carrying around a half-dead Jewish person, right? But he stepped into the uncomfort. And the same is true for us. If we're going to love the vulnerable, it's going to mean cries of babies, blistered hands, time spent in the Arizona sun, time filling out monotonous forms and job applications and things like that. See, I think the biggest obstacle between us in this room and caring for the most vulnerable, for those in need, is this giant mountain of metaphorical pillows that we've built all around us. And in order to follow Jesus, we're going to have to swim through a river of pillows, of, of offerings for our own comfort. When we come to know Jesus, he gives us his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, but he does not give us a pillow. Instead, he gives us a cross and he says, come follow me, take up your cross. I'm moving to care for those who are bleeding, who are hurting, who don't have a home. Come follow me in that. But you may have to lay down some pillows in the process. Number two is the culture of hashtag people. Who's a hashtag person? There are hashtag people and there are real people. Hashtag people are the concept, the idea of a type of person, a label for a type of person. And sometimes we can become so locked in on the hashtag and the idea of someone that we actually forget the real people. The hashtag refugees, but not actually caring for the real refugees. Hashtag um, the, the uh, justice, but not actually getting into the life of the people who are most affected by injustice. Hashtag homelessness. And when we see the, the hashtag, do we actually see my friend Red, who honestly I haven't seen in a while, because I've cared about the hashtags, who's a veteran, a skilled craftsman, and who wants a friend to break bread with him more than have a sandwich tossed through a window. You might see the issue of education, but do you actually see the kid struggling with dyslexia and who needs someone to choose tutoring and friendship over Thursday night football. We may see the importance of the, the sick, the concept, but overlook the person in your dorm who's being ravaged by chronic pain and depression. 
I don't come to you looking down on this situation. I come as a person convicted. This week, I was leading the prayer and action group for criminal justice. I've been doing it for the whole year, uh, along with Bethany Banesh. And it struck me that this week, I spent a lot of time reading books and watching documentaries and thinking about the conceptual criminal justice. But I have a number of friends who are in prison. I have a number of friends who are families that have been affected uh, by the prison system. I have friends who are police officers, and I have not spent time with any of them lately. I come to you as someone who says, I have not been able to see real human people because of focusing on the hashtag. And if we're going to move toward the vulnerable, the actual people, we're going to move in friendship and relationship, and we're going to have to swim against the current of hashtags that makes us actually feel like we're doing something when we're doing nothing culture of hashtags. And then there's the culture of whataboutism. Humans have this incredible propensity, this ability to talk ourselves out of loving just about any person around. We can play mind games with ourselves. We can, we can trick ourselves. This is what's happening with the theologian in the passage. It says, desiring to justify himself. Trying to, trying to get Jesus to say, okay, you're actually doing all right. You don't have to actually love the people outside of your community. He says, who is my neighbor? He's testing Jesus. He's playing a mind game with Jesus. He's trying to find the loophole, and we can do this as well. As soon as the impulse comes that we should care about uh, some, uh, a particular issue or particular people, there's always the voice in culture that says, that's not that big of a deal. What about what about? Hey, maybe I should walk with the homeless. Yeah, but what about all those jobs out there? I should care about the unborn. Yeah, but what about caring for the child after they're born? Foster care. Well, what about those government agencies? Global missions. Yeah, but what about people in our own country? Those who are addicted. Yeah, what about the idea of you reap what you sow? What about my time? What about my safety? What about finding that perfect service opportunity that matches my gifts with the needs of the world, yet only requires 30 minutes of me once a month? Just haven't found it yet. What about my three fantasy football teams? They're not going to manage themselves. <laughs> I know some of you are saying, like, I can't do all of that stuff. No, you do not have to do all of that stuff. You don't have to do everything. But the whataboutisms are the things that keep us going in circles, perpetually thinking about what we should do without doing anything. You don't have to do everything, but do something. Whataboutisms. Look, if you need deliverance from whataboutisms... <laughs> If you want some prayer and some confession and those sorts of things, every day or Monday through Thursday, uh, we're here. We're going to be in this room. We're always praying for the church, 11 to 1130. And if you want some prayer to help work out of that and where you should focus, please come. Well, this leads us to our final cultural current, the thing that's pulling us away from the vulnerable and really pulling us away from Jesus. 
is a culture of tribalism. What you see in this passage, the most scandalous part of this passage, one of the most scandalous parts of the Bible is that the Samaritan is caring for the Jewish person. It was their religious, political, ethnic enemy. They, and that subculture of Samaritans said, you can, you should care about the vulnerable, but Samaritan vulnerable. And the same thing was true with the Jewish people. You should care about Jewish people, but you should care about the vulnerable, but the Jewish vulnerable. But what was really scandalous, the way of Jesus is to say that is good, but his kingdom is about caring for those that your particular subculture has sort of canceled out of the, the people who are vulnerable and worthy of care. And so what, what we see is we don't have Samaritans and Jews in our day who are struggling with each other, but the primary tribes tend to be political ideologies. And believe me, I don't want to talk about this. You don't want me to talk about this, but I'm going to talk about it. We've got one tribe that's, that's the more progressive-leaning tribe. In this room, we split about halfway down the, the middle here. And the people who lean that way care about immigrants and racism and abuse, but tend to devalue other things. And then we've got people who are conservative and a part who lean conservative in this church. You're welcome at this church, both of you, who care about the unborn and veterans and for some reason that I don't honestly under, understand, sex trafficking uh, last summer. But it's been amazing to see these groups actually care about some people. But it's kind of predictable. There is a cultural script that says, this is who you're allowed to care about. And as soon as you start caring about someone else and thinking about someone else, your cultural script begins to draw you away from that. Look, it's predictable to care about those things. It's not surprising. It's good, but it's not hard. It gives you pats on the back from the people in your subculture. But what is hard, what is beautiful, what does show the evidence of the gospel is when you are able to love somebody that's outside of your ideological script. It shows the beauty of Jesus who moves towards us even when we were the other and we were the enemy. The reality is, is that there are people in this room who are intrigued with Jesus. They're not yet following him, but they're intrigued with him. But their biggest stumbling block is it seems that we care more about the tribe and the ideology more than the authority of Jesus Do you mind if I have some fun here? Can, we, can we, we ease up? I want to playfully kind of poke some people in the chest here. Look, there is nothing surprising or countercultural when a baby boomer from the suburbs who went to a Christian school, who owns a truck filled with Chick-fil-A wrappers and thinks Larry Bird is an underrated basketball player comes to the conclusion that we should care about the sanctity of life. Nothing countercultural about that. We, we should, and it's good. But the real beauty of the gospel 
The real countercultural thing is when that person is also gripped by the love of Christ and decides to also care for refugees and immigrants. I got some amens here. Well, I'm coming after you too. <laughs> there is nothing surprising when that, that guy's daughter, the 20 year old uh, woman who's a liberal arts student at ASU, who drives a Prius filled with Peter Jungle rappers <laughs> and says the words justice, trauma, and privilege 26 times an hour comes to the conclusion that you should care about immigrants and refugees. Nothing countercultural about that. But the power and the beauty of the gospel is if that same person can, ex can extend their view of justice to care for the unborn. Look, we need both of you in this church. We need to be a church that has people who lean these different directions and help all of us see the whole span of the, the vulnerable people and to be a church that says, we don't lean this way, we don't lean this way. We follow Jesus and care for all of the hurting people. And when we do that, those people who are intrigued by Jesus, who are leaning over and saying there's something unique about him, will start to see his life lived out in his people that self-giving love that moves towards those in need, and they'll see the beauty of the gospel. Let's swim against the currents of comfort, the currents of hashtag people, the currents of whataboutism, and the currents of tribalism. Because then we can really, actually love the vulnerable. Well, the other, next thing I want to bring our attention to is the invitation that Jesus gives to audit your gifts. Everyone in this room has gifts and abilities and possessions and, and time that's given by God as instruments of love that can be used to care for the vulnerable. But there's an idea in culture, um, don't know exactly where it comes from, there's this idea that I need to wait until I have enough money, until I have enough time, until I have enough skills in order to actually do something. So I'm going to just kind of work hard for now, get through this season, and then eventually I'll be able to do it, but that day never comes. But what is happening here is that Jesus is giving an invitation to say, here and now, Audit your life. Look at the gifts that I have given you and reimagine those things as instruments of love for others. Where do you see this in the passage? Well, the subject at hand is actually the, um, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And we've heard that so many times. It's almost become cliche. We kind of lose the punch of it. We think it's some sort of like command to be like Mr. Rogers. It's like be nice to people, right? But it's actually a pretty subversive command that Jesus uses to, to tell us to audit our lives. In other words, to love your neighbor as yourself is to say, day in, day out, you've been practicing loving somebody. And that somebody is yourself. You've, you've gotten possessions to care for yourself. You've got a spare bedroom to love yourself. You learned how to grill a steak to, to love yourself. You got a bicycle. You got an accounting degree to love yourself. 
There's nothing wrong with that. But now that you, you have mastered those things, you now get to reimagine the very things you use for yourself as instruments of love and care for others. And so we see the Samaritan doing this. The Samaritan shows up to the, to the wounded man and he doesn't just show up and stand there and say, it seems like you're in a really hard situation. <laughs> Empathy is good, but in that moment, he needs some love, right? And so the, the Samaritan looks at what he has around him and repurposes it for, the, for that moment to alleviate the suffering. It says that he bandaged his wounds. People weren't walking around with bandages. Most commentators think that in order to get those bandages, you would have to rip off your own clothes to make the bandages. He looks in his suitcase. He sees some wine and some oil. Maybe he's going to go visit an Italian person trying to show off or something. <laughs> but he uses the oil as the anti, or the wine as the antiseptic and the oil to tend to the wounds. He, he, he turns the donkey into an ambulance. He, he gets to the inn and sees what money he has. And he says, I can reimagine this money and turn it into a hospital uh, to care for this wounded person. And in a moment, just by looking in a suitcase, he's become the EMT, the nurse, the ambulance driver, and an angel investor who's just started a new hospital. <laughs> just the simple things in his bag. And the same is true for us. There are a lot of things in our life that we tend to look down upon that God has given us, but they are potent gifts to be repurposed, redeployed for the sake of the vulnerable. There was a, um, a season uh, a few years ago. Uh, it was one of my favorite seasons. It was when a group of us from the church here, we befriended some refugees from Uzbekistan, and they had been through it. They had gone through some of the most unspeakable pain. I can talk more about it in the podcast tomorrow, but the reality is they have been, they were, went through so much, separated from their families. They ended up here, and they're just trying to figure out how to do life. Really gifted, sharp people. They're entrepreneurs. They're trying to start businesses. And they asked us as we built this friendship with them, they're like, hey, would you kind of help us out with some of this stuff? And we were looking around it and realized, how are we going to help? This big issue of refugees, we're not like diplomats or anything like that. But we started looking around at what we have. We had someone in the group who's a photographer and graphic designer, helped made a website for some of their businesses. Someone who knew some, some, something about marketing, um, helped kind of market their businesses. Their businesses start doing well. We had someone who wasn't an accountant, but had once been an accounting major and then dropped out, who was able to make some spreadsheets to help keep the finances in order. We didn't have English teachers. We had people who spoke English who said, like, we'll be a dialogue partner with you and you can help practice. And then there were some mothers who were worn out and they said, look, you can't ask anything else of me but this. But what I can do is I can take one other kid while the women are going to English class and I'll, I'll take care of them because women, the women in that community were not getting English classes as well. We even had one guy who was kind of a hothead and he got fired so much that he was really good at filling out job applications and that was kind of his job. <laughs> These simple things reimagined as instruments of love. Well, the community started to thrive and they started to see that there was an opportunity for them to do something. 
It was the days of the Arab Spring, and they started to organize a movement of people who would go back to Uzbekistan and through nonviolent protest seek to remove the dictator and to establish a new, flourishing, free, uh, thriving Uzbekistan. They told me about the plan. I'm like, hey, go for it, but I, I don't know what I can tell you. And they had this big gathering in Germany, and they sent Uzbeks from all over the world, and the community here said, we need to have a representative from Redemption Church go. And I had the privilege of being that person. And I come, first of all, I got lost for like half a day in Germany, and then I show up, and I'm the only non-Uzbek in the room. I have no idea what's going on. Every, every few minutes or every few hours, they'll ask me to give a speech, and I'll like string together some platitudes and quote Martin Luther King Jr. And then they're like, okay, sit down. And I don't know what's going on. But then the room gets tense. And they're appointing people into leadership of this movement. And one guy who was appointed was a guy who was a Muslim who had become a Christian. And they were arguing over whether they could trust a Christian or not to be in leadership in this movement. Because everyone else in the room is Muslim, but me and this guy. I think, well, if there's a time for me to speak up, this is it, right? Wrong. <laughs> I was still scared and confused. But, but the Uzbek guys that I'm friends with stood up, and they gave this impassioned speech about you, about this community in Arizona who had come around them and walked with them in their time of need and proved that people who are Christians are trustworthy. And they won over the room, and that guy got appointed into leadership. And not only did he get appointed into leadership, later that day they came and said that we've changed the bylaws, and if our dreams for Uzbekistan uh, come true, that we're going to allow for churches to be there. And we want Redemption Church to plant the first church there, the first church in their vision of Uzbekistan. And that was a day when about 60 Muslim leaders commissioned us to go plant a church in a Muslim country. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was beautiful. But it started with someone with some photography skills, an accounting dropout, some people who spoke English, and someone... <laughs> who couldn't keep a job but could do a good job on applications, right? These simple things, if we pay attention to them, can be repurposed as instruments of love for our neighbors. So on your seat, there's a little card. It's the Samaritan Audit. And my, my request is that this week you would write down, you take some time to write down and pray through the gifts that you have, the abilities, your time, your possessions, and how those can be reimagined as instruments of love for the vulnerable. And again, if you need prayer for that, you need help with that, 11 o'clock uh, Monday through Thursday, we'll be in the prayer room and we'll be there to pray for you as you process through that. Well, this leads me to the final thing I'm going to say. I'm not going to take a lot of time on this, but this is probably the most important thing I'm going to say. The third and most important invitation that we have is to see the true Samaritan. How are we going to have the endurance and the motivation to actually continue to love the vulnerable? 
How are we going to be able to turn a should into a get to? It's when we come and we constantly encounter the true Samaritan. As they heard that story, they were probably wondering, is there anyone who's actually like that? Anyone who's actually like the Samaritan, who generously and sacrificially loves the other, the enemy? And what they didn't realize is that they were standing in the presence of the one who is an even greater than the good Samaritan. They were realizing that they were not the heroes of the story, but they were the vulnerable. And that Jesus was the Samaritan who came looking for them and moved toward them when they were wounded and in need on the side of the road. Throughout church history, whenever you see outbursts of of caring for the poor and for the orphan and caring for the vulnerable, it comes through an encounter, not a guilt trip, but an encounter with God's love and God's grace and realizing that we are the vulnerable and therefore we extend care to the vulnerable. That we are the wounded, but we've been healed by Jesus, so we go to the sick. That we are in need And therefore, Jesus has lavishly given us so that we go to those in need. That we are beggars, and Jesus has been our feast, so we go to those who are hungry. What's going to compel us to love the vulnerable is that Jesus moved towards us when we are vulnerable, suffering under the weight of sin, Satan, and death, caring for us in our most vulnerable moments. We may feel strong now, but we came into this world as a baby in need of others. We're going to go out either really quickly or in need of others' care. And and we are the people in need, and Jesus has met us in our need. What compels us to care for the homeless is that Jesus moved towards us and became our refuge. What compels us to move toward the sick is that Jesus moved toward us and became our great physician. What compels us to care for those who are orphans is that Jesus moved towards us and brought us home to the Father. And so today, as we come to the table, let us remember that there is one who is greater than the Good Samaritan. And rather than carrying us to an inn and paying two days' wages, he carried his own body to the cross and paid the wages with his own body. So as you come forward and take communion today and you remember, and you take the bread, you remember that body that was given for you, for you by the Good Samaritan. And then rather than washing our wounds with wine, Jesus cleansed us with his own shed blood on the cross. So as you take communion today, delight in the better Samaritan who moved towards you and bled for you and cared for you. What's going to fuel our love for the vulnerable? It's that Jesus met us when we were vulnerable. And my prayer has been that we would walk out of these doors today and move towards those who are in need and actually do something. But before we can move out there, we need to move forward here and come and take communion and worship and be renewed in the great love that God has towards us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ways in which you have cared for us and that you have loved us. And we pray that that would fuel our love. 
we pray for is the sense of your voice. That wherever, whatever cultural current is pushing us away from those that you see and that you care about, we pray that you would expose it. And that you would draw us into repentance. God, we pray for our lives and the gifts that you've given us that you would show right now to the folks in this room, what's the gift, what's the thing that you've given them that you want them to use to, to show the generous and merciful God that you are. God, we worship you now and we enjoy the feast you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our friends, let's sing to the great Samaritan. Let's take communion and let's pray together now.